Welcome back, everybody. Ortho Talk number eight. This week, we are joined by a former attending of ours, Dr. Jeremy Summerson. Dr. Summerson is an assistant professor of shoulder and elbow surgery at uh, UTMB in Galveston, Texas, uh, and just a good guy all around. It was a great conversation. Uh, we get into just a bunch of topics. Um, his recent experience with coronavirus and how that's affected his practice and uh, you know, then we get into some stuff like teaching philosophies and how to teach people how to scope a shoulder, um, get into ABOS part two a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's just overall good talk. Um, so if you like the podcast, again, give us five stars on iTunes. Check out our website to hear all our other old episodes. Get in touch with us at OrthotalkPod on Twitter. And uh, without further ado, Jeremy Summerson. All right, straight from his, straight from his living room. Dr. Summerson, thanks for coming on, man. Absolutely. We're, no, we're just talking about this depressing COVID stuff. How you, so you had it, right? How are you feeling? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I, I really felt like I just had allergies for a couple of days and we were going to go visit the in-laws. Uh, so we figured we should get tested. So, so I got, uh, got a test and was positive and, uh, pretty much just like a day of symptoms. And then I could not taste or smell anything for a week. Was that it was, weird? It was really weird. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what that's like. It's like you, if, you, if you ever like took a bite of hot pizza and burned your tongue <laughs> and then for the rest of the night you couldn't taste anything, it was exactly like that. It was like your tongue is, your tongue is numb. So hmm. if you burn your tongue a lot, how do you, how do you know you have COVID or not? <laughs> True. I hadn't had any. I didn't, it was like in the morning, first thing. I, took, I drank some coffee and I didn't taste it. And it was, I was just trying to figure out what was going on. Were you having like fevers before that? Or was that I didn't have any fevers. Had? I just had like one day of sore throat and runny nose and that was, that was it. Did you have to report to UTMB or anything yeah, like that? So I, uh, so I actually got the test through UTMB. So I called him up, I called him up after, uh, you know, after I was done with work and said, Hey, I started, I got home. I started feeling like a little bit congested, started getting sore throat. Can I get a test tomorrow? And they said, by the way, you can't go back to work until you're, uh, until you're tested now. So, uh, so I got the, so they got me the test the next day and then uh, came back positive on Sunday. And uh, basically they said, you have to stay away from work for 10 days from when your symptoms started. Okay. What, what was the test like? They, right, actually, I, I mean, I was expecting, I was expecting something terrible. It wasn't, it wasn't as bad, the nasal swab? It was like, it was, it was like not something I would want to do every day, <laughs> but it was, it was, uh, it was at the Texas city site where they do an awesome, you know, they, they've got this like machine set up. So you're just like one person in one person out, you never run into another patient. They just like have been doing oh, this nice. day, obviously. And, uh, so stick the thing up your nose and then you think, okay, well that's not so bad, but then it's like an inch further. <laughs> <laughs> And then they have to like wiggle it around for a certain amount of time and then they, they take it out. Yeah. People have described it as like tickling your brain. Yeah. It's kind of like, I guess, I guess people used to like kill a frog with a, like a little chopstick. You'd stick a, stick a, stick in its brain and spin it around. That was the, that was the feeling I had. Oof. Oof. Like so, pithed. But I, I, I was expecting it to be worse. I, I honestly expected it to be really terrible. And it was just like, it was like getting a, getting a tetanus shot or something. Oh, I thought you were talking about the virus, <laughs> not the test. <laughs> it seems like both were pretty easy for you. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the scary thing is you just don't know, you know, or then you're going to give it to your family and then your family's going to yeah, be in yeah. the hospital or something. So the scary part is just the what ifs. Yeah, some people uh, some people say that it's not that bad. And then you have like, I, I, I think there's a different strains going around. I can't prove that, but I think it's yeah. just like, like severe strain and then not so severe strain. And I don't know. I've heard that too from people here. I was um, for it. it has to do with the uh, the dose you get, and so you can get oh, like, like the viral high load? dose. It's like po- any poison. You get a real high dose, and you may get a more severe course of it. You yeah, low dose, and it may be light, maybe lighter. Yeah, I saw something today saying that like even having immunity might not be truly immune. Like you could get it again. Like a second. Yeah, yeah, and the word the you know the least uh, the less symptoms you have, I guess, the more likely you are to to not get as much antibody response. So are you still going to be protective and wear masks and social distance, even though you've had it? Or do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you, uh, you know, part of it is also just to like be an example Mm. and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, not act like a, not act like a fool. So what, what, uh, what have you done work-wise, like in the operating room? Are you just going standard mask, standard PPE (laughs) when you're scrubbed in? Are you in there for intubation? Like, I stay, I I have been staying out of the room for intubation. Yeah. Uh, just, just because, you know, I realized I really don't have to be in there for that. So I hang out, I hang out till afterwards. Uh, all of our patients get a pre-op COVID test and we're supposed to isolate before that. So, uh, so within 72 hours, everyone gets COVID test. Um, you know, otherwise, uh, I haven't really been doing anything else different other than the, uh, other than just staying away when they're intubating. Yeah. How's your, how's your practice been affected? I mean, you obviously had the lull with the elective surgeries, but did it pick up after that? Like once things kind of. Well, we had, we had a, we had pretty good sized backlog. So for, for a couple of weeks, it was nuts. We were just, you know, turning mm-hmm. through and there were lots of people who, uh, lots of people who are really, really affected, you know, really bad pain and really bad problems and, uh, did not, um, you know, understandably, we're upset that they their uh, that their surgery got delayed. Yeah. So, so we had a lot of people trying to get surgery at the same time, um, well. and then the uh, the clinic started opening back up again, and so so for for up until now, it's been busier than it was before uh, before COVID. Now people are starting to slow down a little bit. We're getting a lot more no shows. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're about to see things turn down a little bit. Do they do they try to limit your clinics here? The, here they try to limit the clinics in in my program to a certain number of visits each day and space them apart. Yeah, we basically have, have tried to stay away from a, you know you don't have two busy surgeons in the same area at the same time. Um, the waiting rooms are are reduced capacity, so so we're booking less cases. We're not doing overbooks, uh, booking less visits. Um, we're just trying to spread out a little bit, but. Uh, other than that, they, the the clinics have actually been been you know pretty busy just because there's a backlog of people who've been waiting to to get in and get seen. Yeah, they they tried the same stuff here, like like uh, really cutting clinics in half, I think, and like the right. same thing, no double books. That lasted maybe like almost a week. I think like surgeons surgeons in general just can't like. I don't it's know. hard to say no, especially if yeah. like your colleague. You know, your colleague has someone that wants yeah. you to have on, then, then you say yes. Yeah, and it just kind of picks back up. And uh, literally, like, one week after things kind of opened back up, we were almost maybe 80 
just back. Yeah. And it's like you said, there's a whole backlog of, of people yeah. just like, you know, needing to be seen. So just try to get them in as quick as you can and get it done. We're being asked now to try to switch some people to telemedicine, but the, the telemedicine has not been super effective. A lot of people don't, don't pick up, don't answer. Or uh, um, so, so I've found that to be kind of, you know, 50, 50, yeah, we did. We did a good chunk of that uh, during the quarantine. At least I did. Uh, mostly to try to just stay busy so that I didn't get pulled to an ICU or something. Um, and yeah, it's, it's hit or miss. You get like older people who don't really know what they're doing. And then, you know, you get some younger people who are a little more tech savvy and it works. I did some, I had, I had one or two where like they'd, they'd pick up while they were driving and it'd be like, no, 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 I can't do this. This, this isn't right. <laughs> Just call me later. I'll be here. Um, or like they'd pull over in a parking lot and we'd, we'd you know, I guess do a car visit or something, but I, don't know. I, I never really got a good exam ever. Uh, yeah. I didn't really do much that way. Uh, and apparently now there's like virtual goniometers that you can use too. Um, I don't know if they've been implemented. I've never used one, but um, I guess they're out now. Uh, you can like wow. augment reality kind of and just have them move their shoulder up and down and they'll measure it for you. Um, which I guess, why don't we use that in real life too, right? I guess we have physical goniometers, but no one really uses those. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, now we're doing mostly like MRI reviews or like CT reviews, like virtually. Um, yeah. It seems to be the consensus utilization, at least in our, our part. Well, yeah, one thing I'm worried to... about was uh, whether whether uh, patients are going to be getting you know charged copays for those. And I haven't I haven't heard a lot of negative feedback, but um, I worry a little bit if patients are going to see that as the same value because you're, you're the, the 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 CPT codes are the same as like a regular visit, just probably lower level. So you're, you're yeah. I think there's a modifier for it. I think there's there's a couple modifiers you throw in for the tele telemedicine one. And I think at least right now, audio and video are being billed the same uh, yeah. just during COVID. But I, I think normally that's not the case. Um, and then there's like certain documentation requirements you have to hit too. Like, uh, they have to be in the same state, I think. Otherwise, it, it doesn't count. I guess your medical license doesn't count. Uh, so you have to document that they're in the same state as you and like all that mm. kind of stuff. I don't know. It's, a, it's interesting. I, it's definitely, people are going to want it moving forward. So I think we... we need to adapt at some point, um, at least incorporate it a little bit. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll find out soon. Yeah, so you think they're here to stay, televisits, even after the pandemic? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's tough for orthopedists, um, but, you know, primary care, if you don't really need to do much, um, and you're just, like, doing blood pressure checks and diabetes checks, and you can do all that virtually, why not? It'll save money, save time. You know, I think we may start doing that for the uh, for the prison for the TDC population. They're trying to get us to do some more telemedicine, which is a great. These poor guys are getting that. like before know, we got there. They used to do that. Uh, I think we had a we had a spine tele teleclinic um, way back in the day. Okay. I think when we were when we were interns, we used to have that. So I had to cover that one day, and I had never done a spine rotation, so I was just telling everyone to get MRIs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess you you know you for for new patients, it's a little hard to assess them. But uh, if you have if you just had a cup repair and you're you're going on five days worth of buses to get back to see me for a yeah. wound check, you know that's a uh, a lot of them would be like, do we really have to come back for the six week visit? Because yeah. it's 
three different buses and three overnight stays and uh, stuff like that would be better with telemedicine probably. So I got this, um, someone tweeted at me. Let me see if I can pull it up. I was asked to give advice on a junior resident starting their sports rotation. Actually oh, much. I knew you would bring this up. I'm bringing it up because I want to get your take. Uh, so he asked me, Rob Hartzler from San Antonio, uh, Noel, who I guess is also in San Antonio. Uh, Hartzler is the big SCR guy, I think, right? He's with Burkhardt. And he's done a lot of the yep. SCR studies. Um, and I think Rachel Frank, too. Um, basically, I said, learn how to make portals and get into a joint. As a junior resident, that's probably a good goal to get. Uh, and then I said, just learn the fundamentals because – Everyone does things like a hundred different ways, but usually the fundamentals are the same. And Hartzler replied basically saying, I disagree. Fundamentals are vastly different between surgeons. And I'm not sure what he meant. What, Cause hmm. I, to me, it's like the, the, the basics are, are the same. There's just a hundred different ways to achieve the same basic thing. Right. Yeah. Like if you're doing a cuff repair, you just anatomic healing of the cuff to bone is what you're going for. And there's, you know, there's different ways, single row, double row, knotless, knotted, like it's all going to try to achieve the same thing. I, do you, do you think there's different fundamentals in sports medicine or shoulder, shoulder elbow that we differ between different surgeons? Uh, I think there are some things that, that, you know, a lot of people would agree on. I think the importance of, uh, I think the importance of positioning, and being able to set your patient up so you have access and so you're not blocking yourself with the scope. Um, you know, there's no one who's going to argue, argue that you're, you're getting too much, you're draping out too much patient or you're, yeah. uh, so, so I think that's being able to position someone safely is, uh, is, is really key. Um, that's a big part of, I think the junior resident is learning how to learning what things to look out for, starting to develop a checklist in your head. I actually am kind of a fan of the, uh, I've, I've come to like this uh, scope trainer, this virtual virtual scope deal. Is this uh, new or is this the one that they had while we were there? It's one you've had, but nobody ever, nobody ever used. Is, it, is this the, the white dome with the black portals all yeah. over the place? Well, there's a, there's a shoulder model too that you can put in there. There's an E-model and they're little games like you can go in and you'll collect stars. Oh, okay. Yeah, space. I know what you're talking about. I've used, I've used that a little quite quite a bit back in the day i feel like the biggest you know one of the biggest struggles when you're starting out is getting getting a view because there's soft tissue in your face all the time and that's that's the downside of that model is they don't really simulate the soft tissue you have to you have to get out of the way no but otherwise it's a i, think I thought it's a good it was model. pretty good for triangulation exactly uh, um yeah i thought i thought that was the best part of it but uh no, obviously you can't really recreate the physical part of a scope. Like if you're doing a knee and putting enough valgus into it to get in the medial compartment or like the actual motion, you're not going to get that from a simulator, but that's a given, right? Um, but spatial training and, and triangulation I thought was great. But basically you want to have it so that when you're, when you get the scope put in your hands and your attending says, okay, now look off to the left, follow the, follow the biceps over. Yeah. You can real smoothly spin your camera, you know, turn your eyes over, look that way follow smoothly, follow your own instrument. You can follow, you put your probe in and follow it over. And I think stuff like that, you can practice with a, you can practice with a trainer, you know, why not be, be ready to shine when you, when you've yeah. got two instruments in your hand, you can, you can triangulate, turn your camera, everything. Yeah. So how do you use that now? 
this year, this year we came up with a whole plan for how we're going to do bioskills labs. So my plan is, is that the, the uh, fourth years are going to have gone through the whole shoulder module. There's all these games you got to go through. There's a, there's a set of modules you got to complete. And there's like a, you can keep track of your times. So at the end of the year, we'll have a little competition of who's got the, who's got the <laughs> best times on the trainer. Do you want to tell us who won this year? Well, yeah, this is starts July 1st. So Grant McChesney. Oh, we started yet. First, uh, oh, wow. Oh, nice. First competitor. Interesting. We should give an award for that, the uh, <laughs> simulation award. Yeah, typical Grant fashion. I, I emailed him and said, hey, I'm having everybody go through the scope trainer. Would you go through all the shoulder models before we get started? And the answer is, well, I went through them all as an intern, but I'm going to go through them again. <laughs> there we go. Shocker. <laughs> we need an ankle scope model as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, I guess to get back to your, to your, to your question, I think uh, basics of positioning set up, safe, safe beach chair, safe lateral position. Uh, and then, um, you know, find yourself a, a model. There are lots of uh, real simple models too that you can, you can set up. There's a, there's a $200 laptop based one that you can, uh, it's got a little USB scope that we got, a, we got one of those too. Um, so, so for not a lot of expense, your department can set up a, uh, set up a real simple skills lab for scopes. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, I saw a lot of literature a while ago about that, about cutting down time and um, cutting the learning curve down. It seems to help. It's just, you can't get that practice really anywhere else, you know, unless you actually get in the shoulder or the knee. Well, and you, and you know, you know, as you go through scopes, there's, uh, you know, time's not on your side, as, oh, yeah. As yeah, especially in the, the shoulder, things are swelling up. And so, so you have a certain amount of time to teach. So it's better not to be using that time to teach how to turn your camera or how to triangulate. You can get some of that out of the way outside the, outside of the, the OR. You make him do it lateral too. What's up? You make him go lateral too on the simulator. Can you do that? You can, yeah, you can actually turn the whole model, yeah. flip it lateral, yeah. and you just go lateral on the... That was a total, my, like, oh, man. Like my first my first rotation in fellowship was lateral, and it was the first lateral scope I'd done. In re- I didn't do any in residency. Um, did we never do a, uh, we, we never, never did a lateral scope? We, uh, apparently, you, you wanted to do some for instability. I didn't get much instability anyways, but apparently Rob Williams talked you out of it or, or complained too much about the lateral position. <laughs> <laughs> so you just went beach chair after that. And I, now I, I made the lateral with you. I, we had a ton of laterals when I was with you. We had yeah, like, I feel like when, when Jay was there, we had this run of uh, instability yeah. cases, like a bunch of TDC instability cases. Do you flip back I and forth? The, the, I, I, I still do lateral for instability for, uh, for bank arts and posterior. And you go beach chair for cuff? And I started, uh, Rob taught me, you know, Lindemann taught me mm-hmm. uh, to do lateral for, for um, capsular releases. Oh, yeah. It's way better. Yeah, it's a lot easier. Way easier to get down to the bottom and get the capsule release. So, so I do it for that, too. Yeah, it's been, our, our fellowship is pretty much half-half. We're, uh, or a little less than half, I guess. Two of our guys will do lateral for everything. I think they're both Hawkins guys who do lateral for everything. Uh, one of our guys will do lateral instability, beast chair for cuff, and, you know, just other, other shoulder work. And one guy, our chairman, will do beast chair for everything. And that is, beast chair instability is like a different, different game. Yeah. And you know, some people, some really good surgeons make it work. Uh, Yeah. So I've never really, I've never really tried it. I just didn't have the training for that. Yeah. It's good. I think it's nice to see all the different ways to do it, get practice doing it. It makes you better with the scope for sure. Trying to turn the bounce back and forth. I would have liked to just have one position and do every scope in the same position. And that's what, that's what Dr. Uh, Warm 
in at University of Washington. He would do everything in lateral. And he said, the advantage is just you have a setup. You have a shoulder scope. Yeah, you know exactly. what it's going to be. And everyone uh, knows the done. draping. And you know, there's no, no fudging around with the positioning, really. Once people get the hang of it, I guess. But he, he also is working with fellows. So we have six months with him to pick it up. Whereas uh, yeah. Yeah. I do think as a resident, you know, just with a few months, it's hard to, hard to pick up hard to pick up lateral position scoping yeah or scoping in general really right even as a resident like yeah like i don't know how do you approach that how do you try to teach scoping to if you get like a junior resident on that hasn't had much scoping experience like how do you balance the time like you said the time factor right you can't let them just yeah. sit around the shoulder for a while first do you, do it's, you it's tough and you have to not let your own uh not let your own ego get in the way you know you can't in the beginning i was i think i was real uh tried to try to basically let people go until until they they were stopped they couldn't mm-hmm. get any further but then i noticed i was i was running out of time to to do the job i wanted to do so i think you have to be a little bit uh, proactive and uh try to have goals for each case to get people through so so if you have a junior it's good to get success experiences get into the joint look around um uh, and then if you're a, uh, if you're, a, if you're a senior, I try to kind of have a stepwise progression where first you're, first you're doing the, uh, first you're doing the diagnostic scope, then you're doing the biceps tenotomy, uh, then you're doing the distal clavicle, then you're clearing out subacromial yeah. and, uh, and you just start coming up with time frames in your mind. Like you'll get into the subacromial space and then five minutes to clear out, clear out bursa. Yeah. So I just have kind of a timeline in my mind, like this is how we're going to keep moving to the next step. What about for your open surgeries? When you're when you were first starting out, I remember you were always really good about letting us, you know, do a lot right from the get go. So I was always impressed with that. How do you how do you balance that for someone like me or Mo who's starting out in a few months, and you know we have residents and we're trying to let them do stuff, but we're also trying to figure out how we want to do it ourselves. Well, I think uh, you know. Teaching is a, is a reason to get into academics. And so um, there's, uh, it's all about time. Uh, and so, so it's good. What I've kind of learned is to, to not book a crazy amount of cases in, in the day. And then we, everyone feels good about it. You have time to teach. Uh, you have time to, to let residents kind of struggle and find their way in, in, uh, in a supervised, uh, supervised environment. Uh, so I think it's, I think it's really good to, uh, in the beginning, don't overbook yourself. You know, you, uh, you guys are doing eight or 10 scopes in a day and, in, in uh, fellowship, uh, you know, start out doing, start out doing two or three and, uh, and that'll make you feel better about being able to give yourself time. If I have a, if I have a crazy day where, uh, the ORs, the ORs, the ORs telling me I'm not going to make it through in time, obviously then it's harder to, yeah. it's harder to let people, people work as long. So, so I try to keep, I try to keep the case posts, uh, case posting, case posting reasonable. And then you can, then you can give people more teaching time. That's a good point. A lot of people yeah. say that just book your case for like an hour or two more than you think it's going to take. Especially yeah. when you're first starting out. Totally. Yeah. Jason Shu from uh, Seattle gave me that advice. He said, just take whatever you think it should take and, double it yeah and i did that in the beginning and the or comes back to me and say wow you're you're uh this guy's so fast yeah i'm booking four hours for a cuff so yeah i think it's i think i would encourage you to book book lots of time 
Yeah, I think it's easier to do that if, you're, especially if you're not really incentive based, like your first two years, like contract wise, right? Like if you're just if you're salary. I don't know. I don't know how beginning. Con- I mean, I haven't signed a contract yet, but Jay, are you? You're incentive. You're not incentive based for your first two years, right? No, I'm not incentive at first. Um, I think I have the option to opt in after a, a year, though. So I'll have to double check that uh, the exact time frame. But uh, I remember it being relatively soon. But you know, at first, I'm not gonna. I don't plan to try to book a million cases and get super busy. Like my daughter Sumption says, you know, have have less cases, give yourself more time, and that way you can let your residents do more, and and everyone kind of feels good, just like you said. So I think that's great advice. <clears throat> And yeah, and honestly, the uh, the um, as long as you have a guarantee the first the first couple of years, then uh, there's not a big there's not a big downside to you personally. Now yeah. I'm out of I'm in I'm in the incentive period now, so you're at, you can do the calculation of of yeah. uh, booking one less case right. is costing me. You know, is That's dinner. Me <laughs> yeah, but uh, but just just if you're if you're in academics, you should be there to you should be there to teach and and. Uh, if your goal is just to have, uh, you know, people, people do your work for yeah. you, it's probably not a good long-term strategy. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. How's your boat doing? Boat's been sitting out there like untouched. Really? <laughs> do you regret it yet? No, the boat. I mean, we got like a used. We got a used cheap boat, so yeah. so there's like little. There's not a whole lot to lose. Yeah. Not even the maintenance part. Maintenance hasn't been so bad. Uh, we just, I just found out once yeah, we let it sit for about two months and everything got clogged up and I had to pay some money to get it, get it cleaned out. But uh, as long as you run it every week, it seems to be okay. Nice. <laughs> Jay, you're, are you moving to, are you going on the waterfront? No, I've got like an artificial um, like water lake pond thing, a retention pond in my backyard, but it's not like real water. I don't even. I don't even think I can fish in it. So, I don't really know the purpose of it. Hopefully, it prevents my house from being flooded. Um, if it does that, then it's worth it. But um, no, I just plan on hopping onto his boat whenever, whenever I feel like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, even tell him. To be honest, half the time I'm just like I'm just hooking up a hose to it and running it in the <laughs> in the lift just so it'll just so the engine will run once a week. Nice. <laughs> so I actually need I need people to come over and. Uh, take it for a spin nice do you need a do you need like a boating license how's that how's that work no, you you have a, a driver's license and you're allowed to boat in texas really oh nice yeah it's awesome it's a low it's a low bar you can tell oh. <laughs> there we go <laughs> perfect that's pretty cool I didn't is there, know. Is there drinking sense. drinking and boating rules regulations yeah. Yeah. Same as for driving. <laughs> it's it's. I think it's. I think it's the same. Uh, the same cutoffs. Hmm. Uh, and there's actually a fair amount of police out on the water. Uh, so so they they do a good job of keeping eyes on keeping eyes on people. Is there an age limit? I figure it's. I figure it's sixteen. You know, same as uh, same. same as license. Interesting. Uh, one day, one day I may get a boat. We'll see. But that's kind of far off for me right now. Just bought a just bought a, a house that's not on the water, so I should probably keep it for a few years. Yeah, you guys can just come, uh, just pull up and pull up and take the boat out here. You don't have to. <laughs> nice. <laughs> one less one less thing I have to do on the weekend. Yeah, having a friend with the boat's the the best thing I think. So there we go. 
So it's been good. It's nice. You know, the, uh, there's, there's, uh, we don't have a whole lot of outdoor space, so it's good to be able to get on the water and, and do some things. So you've been in practice now for four years, five years? Coming up on four in the fall. Yeah. How, how if you had to go back to when you started, what, what was one thing, what would be one thing you would have done differently? Uh, I'm not, that's a, that's a good question. I, 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 I feel like I, I got really lucky, you know, real fortunate to land in the spot I did. Um, so, so I don't have, I don't have a whole, it's been a great four years. You know, it's great, uh, great place to work. Great group of residents when I started out. Um, you know, especially it was, it was good to have people who are easy to, easy to work with and who could, who could, uh, give you good feedback and give you, give you, um, you know, second set of eyes on everything. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm just, I'm just fortunate to land at a place with really good, really good, uh, residents. I think if you, uh, it would have been even more scary to kind of go out on your own somewhere and then you're the only one in the room and you got to make every, uh, every decision in a vacuum. Um, so I feel like maybe I could have, uh, in the beginning, I think I was, I was, I was pretty conservative in some ways. Maybe that's, maybe that's normal. You're not sure about, you don't want to hurt anybody. Uh, so there's some cases I think where, where probably surgery would have helped somebody, but I was, I was on the cautious side. Um, But in general, I, I uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with how four years of four years have gone. I think uh, key things are are be uh, be able to trust your your part. You know, have good partners, have somebody like Foreman who can who can back you up if you if you need help with something. Uh, probably, if if anything, I, I wish in the first few years I'd had even more. You know, had been humble enough to reach out even more. Yeah. And say, hey, I've got a, uh, I've got a tough proximal humerus. Do you mind scrubbing in with me? Because, because uh, I'm lucky to have lots of people around me who are willing to help out if you, if you, if you need that. So. Yeah, that's good advice. Have you seen? Have, have you uh, seen the techniques you've used change over four years, like from fellowship? Or are you pretty much doing the same kind of things you you did in fellowship still now? Yes, I guess some things are kind of I've I've kind of simplified uh just based on the equipment that they have at UTMB or or uh whatever. But in general I'm I feel like I'm still doing things pretty much pretty similar. Um you know some like some technical things with cuffs. Uh I was kind of trained to make three portals and and uh mm -hmm. work through that. And um a lot of my buddies will be real quick to make uh make additional viewing portals and yeah. uh put additional cannulas in laterally and uh, that's made my life a lot easier. Just, just to say, if you're not happy with your view of the cuff, just, just put another portal, get a better look at it. So, so I definitely have my, my number of portals has grown a lot since I started up. There. <laughs> I've always heard it said that, um, it takes four to five years for a surgeon to really feel comfortable and in, in the swing of things. When did you feel like you reached that point? Like, or have you reached it yet? Do you think you're still getting more and more comfortable or, or did you reach it already? I don't know. I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of depends on the case. Like, uh, you know, you get to a point probably, probably the last couple of years, I felt good about, uh, the, about, about 
cup repairs and uh, and arthroplasty. Uh, but the cases you don't see so often, you know, elbow scopes and uh, bad elbow trauma. Is, um, there's always more to learn, you know, especially elbow, like stiff elbow releases and stuff. Yeah. That's, uh, those are those are just tough cases. So I think I think for me, it's not like I say I wasn't. I felt very, I wasn't comfortable. Now I am. It's just the, uh, the, the, your wheelhouse gets bigger over time as far as what your, what's your, what keeps you up at night. In the beginning, everything keeps you up at night. And then you get to where, you know, less and less is, is a, uh, is, is something you're actively thinking about every time. Yeah, how do you handle cases like that? You've never really seen before, like going in, like, like I've done maybe a few elbow scopes. I haven't done much elbow trauma really like, no terrible triads really here. Um, like stuff you maybe have seen a couple times and don't really know. How do you prepare for something like that? Like if you're it, like, the, like that patient's relying on you. Yeah. Like that's, I don't know, that's a tough spot. Yeah, for, fortunately, there's there's usually uh, there's usually somebody there's usually somebody else either in your group or outside who's who's regional who's who's uh, good at that. And so you have to decide if you want to make that if you want to make that a part of your practice or not, um, you know, if you're, if it's like a, uh, a, um, if you're the, if you're the, you're the guy or the girl who's, who's available for that problem in that area. Um, then I, uh, for example, for the TDC population that doesn't really get to choose to go somewhere else, mm -hmm. if, if they have a problem with me or, or nobody else, um, do a lot of, look at a lot of Umedi. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think uh, videos are videos are real helpful. I uh, I have a couple chat groups. There's a there's a group of folks who are recently out of fellowship from shoulder elbow. Um, so I'd send the cases, send the imaging, get feedback on decision making. Uh, send a lot of cases to my fellowship teachers about what they would do in that situation. Um, so I think I think if you're if you're thinking about it, get lots of feedback. You know, get lots of input and. Uh, don't be afraid to bother people. Just just uh, hit up your fellowship teachers. What would you do? What would you do? How would you do this? What uh, I had a case where it was a uh, split pec transfer that I'd done maybe two in fellowship. Really? And, uh, and so I called Dr. Warm a week before and I said, hey, you mind just talking me through the whole case? Just tell me the, you know, tell me the steps and what's key. And, and he was good. He took 15 minutes, just went through step by step. And he said, when you get to this point, don't tie all your knots at once just clip them all and then tie them down, you know, tie them down sequentially. And I got there and, uh, and it was, it was great. So, so uh, you know, combination of looking at what, what the greats have put on the web and then calling your, calling your teachers. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You've, you've got a really unique um, background having done school in, in Germany. Could you, can you tell us kind of what, what led to that decision and what was that like? I've always thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it was it was a good uh, it was a fun way to to spend like my uh, my my early twenties. Uh, I, I really just planned to go to Germany for an exchange year. I was a college student, thought I'll go for a year, and um, you know ended up spending uh, a second year there. I got a scholarship from from uh, the government, so uh, so I basically finished out my college years while I was still in Germany. And as part of their uh, deal, they said. You can come. You can come and spend a year here, but we're not going to just admit you for one year to the medical program. We got to admit you to the whole six-year program. 
So you can only come for this, you can only come spend the first years here if you agree to be admitted to the whole program. Mm -hmm. So I said, sure, you know, jokes on you guys. <laughs> jokes on you guys, you can't make me stay. And then after two years, I thought, I'm, I'm admitted to this program, it's great. And, uh, and I had some, you know, some real strong connections there at that point. So, uh, so it was a, it was a uh, you know, it's a really good chance to experience another culture and, and learn about another health system. Um, I also, when I, when I made the decision to stay there, I didn't really think I was going into a really competitive specialty. You know, I thought I was going to do uh, infectious diseases or something, internal medicine. Uh, really? So, so that, that I was thinking, well, you know, I can, I can always come back and get a residency in the U.S. or stay in Germany. How's, how's their schooling process different than med school? Or is it pretty similar? You know, a couple years of basic science stuff and a couple clinical years. Well, they have a six-year six-year deal. So you come out of high school, uh, or you come out of your your civil service here, and then you get six years of med. You get direct directly admitted to med school. So when I first went there, I was doing their first two years, which was basic science, biochem, and and physiology and stuff that, that I would have been doing in college. Um, but other than that, it's pretty similar deal. You know, your last year of uh, your last year of med school is pretty much uh, spent rotating clinically. Um, they uh, they're very heavy on lectures, so there's a big part of the day every day that's lectures. Mm -hmm. Or I think in the U.S. it's moved a little more towards like small group problem based. Mm -hmm. It seems a lot more reasonable. It was, uh, me. Like like combining lectures? college and med school. No, just to oh, see that yeah. lecture. Like I don't know. It seems like I'm not a big fan of college to begin with. I don't think like as a forty thousand dollar a year way to discover yourself. I think there's yeah. better ways to do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, if you're going to college to go to med school or to go into engineering or like to go to law school, I think that's one thing. Um, but two years of college seems like enough, I don't know, to get your basics and then move on. Well, I, th I think, I think they got a pretty good, they got a pretty good system. They, uh, you know, ed education is considered to be a human right, not a, uh, not a consumer product. Oh, so, so it's, is it state funded there? So it's all state, all state wow. funded. And, uh, but you know, after that you graduate and, uh, you're not, you're not expecting to make as much money as you make in the U S. So right. I think, uh, they, they put some money in on the front end and then they can, they can have lower salaries on the back end and, uh, people aren't having to sit on a half million dollars of debt. When they yeah. Practice. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting take. And I wonder if that's something that people will try to model here. I don't know. We talked about that last week was this really depressing journal club that I had about the business side of medicine. And the, I think the, the end conversation was that eventually in the next 10 years, we're all going to end up in socialized medicine and it's just going to happen. It's just going to take time. So I'm, I've, I asked myself that question once, I think I recently, like would I take the downside of socialized medicine salary wise, if I didn't have to go through, as much of the training and as much of the debt to get there like would that be an acceptable trade-off and i still don't know the answer i don't know i don't know if i would take it or not um it's an interesting question i guess if you if you skip the process and get a little bit less on the back end of it yeah it's um you know i, th I think we uh it's not sustainable the amount of money we're spending on healthcare right now yeah definitely so. not or so either you as the surgeon uh, 
lead the way and try to give good value for what you're doing and and uh you know don't throw in extra don't throw in extra codes that are not actually germane to the case you're doing yeah um, and uh, if you can if you can demonstrate good value you collect your outcomes you show that for each dollar of healthcare you're putting in you're getting this much in your uh you know in your in your in your um, foot and ankle score your knee score your shoulder score um, and that's what I think people are going to look at in the future. Um, so you got to you got to start out early, demonstrating your value, so that when the when the when the axe falls and funding goes away, you can say this is the value we're creating for the for the money you put in. Yeah, that, that was, so that's another thing that you jumped on pretty early was your outcome tracking. Right. Right. And we don't have to turn this into a SOS advertisement, but um, I've been trying to get that going myself and i actually missed a meeting today sorry arthrex but i missed, I missed that meeting i was in a cadaver lab so um so how'd you get that set up how have you liked it so far do you regularly see how you're doing have you been surprised by either how well you're doing or how poor some of your outcomes have been i mean i'm sure they're all stellar but um, everyone's doing great yeah uh, <laughs> i think i think i think it's it's uh, it's your responsibility to know like how your people are doing uh and so the uh goes back to Codman, the, the end result idea that everybody, everybody he operated on, he would drive to their house in the countryside and, and find them a year later uh -huh. and see how they were doing. Hmm. And so, so now you can do that online, you know? Uh, um, so I think, I think it's been nice just to be able to keep track of people. Uh, you see, when you lose track of people, you can, you can give them a call at a year or two years and check yeah. on them what's going on. Um, and so, uh, I guess I've been I've been uh, pleasantly surprised to see how well the results from cuff repairs have done over time as as they get on to one two three years. Uh, I always had some concern: are they are we just fixing frayed cuff that's going to re tear? And, uh -huh. and, uh, and so whether they heal or not, they're they're that's that's been kind of interesting for me to see how they do later on. Um, so are you are you making these phone calls yourself, kind of going through your surgical list and contacting patients, or is there a system set up to where they can fill out an automatic survey or how does that work? Yeah. So, so, you know, Arthrex has got this and I don't, I don't uh, get any money from them. So I don't feel bad right. talking up their system, but they have a, they have a proprietary system where you can enter someone's email address and text uh, and phone number and it'll text them at or email them at defined intervals and send them your whatever outcome survey you want to use. Uh, nice. So, so it's real convenient. It automatically about 30, 40% of people just fill out everything you send to them and you get a good amount of information from that. Uh, and then um, you get a little dashboard that shows you who's not answered their one-year outcomes. Hmm. So if there's a day I don't have a lot going on, I'll just look at who's not answered their one-year outcomes and start going down the list and, uh, and call them. Was that a service that um, the department helps pay for, or do you fund that yourself? Or? They actually, they made, it a, uh, they made it a free membership benefit of a lot of, uh, you know, yeah. Hannah. Okay. Has it, I think, is a free membership benefit now. Yeah, the oh, has it too. ASCS has it a free membership benefit. Eastern Orthopedic Association has a free membership benefit. So, so it's if you're uh, if you're one of these in one of these societies, anyway, it's free. Yeah, I guess if the Foot Society doesn't have one, I'll, I'll just join the Hand Society or something. <laughs> yeah, for a while I was a, I was a member of the Eastern <laughs> Orthopedic Association. Which doesn't, it doesn't even include Texas. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. A I'll just join the society. Has, have your outcomes, that's really cool. Have your track outcomes caused you to change anything in your practice yet? 
No, uh, no, I haven't seen any like obvious uh, patterns or anything that, that maybe I should I should change. Um, I have I have noticed some, you know, it's I think uh, mostly it's just what you can tell patients what to expect. Uh-huh. I've seen in the the people that end up getting a debridement or a repair for uh, calcific tendonitis, they seem to have a really slow slow recovery, hmm. um, but then end up doing well. At, at, but at like six months. Okay. So I was, I've been real surprised by that. You know, that that's a group that I expected would, would have a pretty quick recovery. Yeah. Have a small tear you fix and uh, they've oh, yeah. had a slow recovery. So now I just tell them, I say, you know, people, people uh, go through a lot of work and a lot of therapy and then, uh, but they, and they, they appreciate being prepared for that. Yeah. How uh, has it helped you research wise yet? Do you, have you collected enough to put together any like outcome studies or anything? It's, uh, it's, it saves you, it saves you the time of just, uh, in fellowship, they'll just collect every, everybody who came in would have to fill out a paper version. And yeah, that's it. what, that's what we've been doing. These yeah. several yeah. forms. And that's what we do as well. Oh, it's painful. It's so it's painful. A, it saves you from that. I do, um, you know, the outcomes I use not as a, uh, as a, as a research tool, but it's like my quality, my quality improvement. So, so I don't have a IRB that covers that but in cases where in the future i wanted to go back and look at it mm-hmm. you, could, you could ask permission to review that retrospectively just like you'd review the chart uh, so I, I so far i've only used it retrospectively i haven't set up any mm-hmm. prospective studies with it interesting yeah and someone someone here said basically clinic is just for research and getting new cases and ever since i ever since you said that i can't look at clinic the same ever <laughs> it's just it's a chore. You, you look at patients as, as data points now? Yeah, it's just, you know, <laughs> we, we have these giant packets of outcome scores that we all fill out. And a lot of them just hate it. They hate it. And you bring them back at like one year and you know, yeah. year, five year just to fill out some paperwork. But I mean, if you could just do it online, it's so much easier. It's Saves so much them a visit, for sure. Yeah. I think probably if I was going to start it from scratch and I had, I had uh, help, I'd probably set up my own system in, uh, in, in red cap or some, mm-hmm. some uh, like open source deal. Um, but the Arthrex system is very easy. You really just have to plug in the phone number and the surgery date and all that. And the, uh, what surgery they had. And it's, uh, so for someone who doesn't necessarily have like a research team, like yeah. they did in, in fellowship, then yeah. uh, if it's just you, then it's great. It's a great system. I was I was reading um, stuff that's on the ABOS part two. Now, I don't know if this is new or they've done this for a few years, but now patient report outcomes are are a part of the of the process where they they contact your patients that are on your board collection period and and they have them fill out surveys and see how they're doing. Is that is that a new thing, or do you, do you know if they've been doing that for a while? I think I, I think I was the first year they did that. Yeah. And so we had to uh, like notify all of our patients. They might be getting an email. Uh, and then uh, we gave them all their email addresses, the people that had email. And I never heard anything else about it. So <laughs> yeah. never got there. Never came nice. up. The damn, like yeah. the way I see that guy's doing, doing terribly. Uh, yeah. I don't think the examiners necessarily had access to it when, when for my year. So. Oh, really? That's weird. That's um, that works. who knows what they're doing for with that. TDC. It was just like a trial run. Yeah. 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 What would you do for, for TDC? T- <laughs> yeah. Like 
They don't have emails, do they? Email them letters. Mail them outcome yeah. letters to fill out yeah. and send back. Yeah, I think probably half of mine were 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 uh, prisoners. So they, you just don't put an email address in. You say unable to. You know, does not have email. How was uh how how did you study for part two? Did you do a, did you do a review course? Uh, for the you mean for the for the for the written oral. part? Oral, yeah. So for for um. I didn't do I didn't do a specific review course. There's like an online webinar I looked at just to get any questions. I had uh, I had a couple opportunities to do a mock oral, and that was great. You know, folks in uh, San Antonio did one just by phone, and then um, you know, UTMB's got a great setup where you can do these mock orals and just have heavy blasty questions. I think I had to I think I had to ask you a question. Yeah. Yeah, I think I did too. Oh, I don't remember the question. Me neither. <laughs> I remember. I remember Jay's questions were like. So Jay's obscure. are anatomy. They're, they're obscure. <laughs> well, you know how they you know how they do it. They they assign assign us a category of questions. Um, so I think I was assigned basic science and anatomy or something, and it's hard to find a good question for that category. It's either something that everybody knows or nobody knows. So, <laughs> so I get I questions like, questions, what's, the, what's the fifth most common variant of the PIN <laughs> as it comes through the... Through the yeah, yeah, I think that was my question for sure. <laughs> but I, I, honestly, I think just to have somebody ask you questions about your cases, just to, just to mentally prepare you for uh, getting asked about them and to be able to talk, uh, talk confidently about it is good. So that was the most useful thing I did was just having, having mock orals go through the cases and... Uh, have people ask off the wall questions <laughs> like Jay. Was there anything like the real exam off the wall questions or, or were we off base there? No, I, I mean, I had a couple, I had a couple random, one guy asked me the mechanism of action for uh, Pradaxa because I, cause oh, I brought geez. it up. Um, oh. But uh, I think there's just some basics of oral exams that you can, you can read about or, you know, talk to people who examine. And it's just, if you, if you open your mouth about something, be prepared, and and you can kind of you can kind of strategically do it. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you bring something up like the the medicine that they were on, and then you'd be prepared to say what the half life is or what the excretion is or whatever. And uh, if you're not ready to talk about it, just don't bring it up. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. You will get yourself yeah. in trouble, I guess. So find some things that you that you know about. Find some knowledge you have, and then try to find a way to to direct the you know, direct the questioning to that. Yeah, that's tougher for some of us than others. Good plan. <laughs> just actually knowing things. <laughs> no, you just you just find like eight obscure drugs that you you know everything about, <laughs> and then you just drop them in there. You like, drop the name. Yeah. Some uh, random anti-rheumatologic drugs. There's total ankle, <laughs> and I I prescribed this random antibiotic that you've never heard of but i know everything about it so well y'all it's not it's not sure what what you guys are going to have for part two right is it is it uh have know. they decided what kind of boards it's going to be they said that they're probably going to go back to the old way of doing it instead of the, the yeah. case review slash virtual review stuff i don't know i mean it this seems like a much better way to do it now i mean if we had to do telemedicine i think the least they can do is do virtual board Teletest or yeah, teletest, <laughs> or at least just look at our cases, right? Isn't that what they're doing this year? They're just looking at cases, and yeah. if, if you pass, you pass. If not, then they'll ask you about them. Our, uh, ask our you about something. told me the uh, that 
from the beginning, boards have always been 95% your, your case list and the letters you get from your hospital. Oh, and everything else is just, just the oral part. And so then, then uh, if you can show up and, and demonstrate some knowledge and, and uh, you know, seem like a reasonable, reasonable surgeon. But most people, most people did not make it to that stage because you got a letter from the chair of anesthesia saying this guy's dangerous or, uh, or your cases are off the wall, you know, and you're, you're doing crazy stuff. So I think, uh, honestly, it's probably not that different just to be based on your case list. I think, I think a lot of that is pre-selection for, for who's, um, who's doing crazy stuff and who's getting uh, bad letters from their hospital. What was the craziest thing you did on your board collections? Uh, I had a dude, my first, my first case in board collections was a chronic elbow fracture dislocation uh, that I put a hinged, el- hinged X fix on. And oh, I know the one. I know the one. That was, that was bad bad. This one. <laughs> and that was, uh, and, and, uh, you know, honestly, he did okay. You know, he, he, uh, he did as, as, probably as well as expected. And, uh, the uh, the examiners just lo- started looking at the X-rays, and I think they're kind of they're kind of uh, happy that you're taking on tough cases that you're not just doing you know the very yeah. very basics and boards. So these these two old guys just looked at me and they're like, huh? Well, that's an easy one. <laughs> How'd he do? I'm like, he did he did okay. I think uh, you know he's back to work and has some limitations. They're like, all right. Well, nice case. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> Nice. I guess if you have too many simple, easy cases, they get bored and just start grilling you on obscure stuff, huh? Yeah, yeah. If you got if you got ten uh, bimal ankle fractures, then probably you're gonna bore them. <laughs> yeah, it's but I think I think uh, I try I try not to to change indications or, or do anything uh, do anything do anything different. I think I think there's there's some there's some value to that that you don't just have a totally whitewashed mm-hmm. set of cases. It's good to, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're having to push something out of your board collection period, you, you probably, probably think hard about it. That's just the first sign. That's the first sign that you should think about it ethically. <laughs> if you're having to do that, then, um, you know, probably it's not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's, sports is kind of a gray like there's a lot of gray area in sports like biologics and all that kind of stuff you if you start throwing that out and people are going to start asking you about the research and there's not much research out there to back anything that you do up i don't know it's tough to justify but or i mean you can't just do dj knee scopes all through board collections and maybe a couple acls here and there i mean that kind of raise some flags i don't know Actually, I, I thought it was a pretty good process. I thought it was a good way to, to, to introspect a little bit and think about what you're doing. And, uh, and uh, I actually think the way that they've been doing it is a, is a valuable, valuable system. Um, it's a lot of work, a lot of uh, thinking. But, but I, found it, I found it useful just to kind of guide where your practice is going to go, uh-huh. uh, to think about, what's, you know, think about your indications real carefully and, and uh, think about how you want to do things. Hmm. Guide where? What do you mean by guide where your practice is going to go? Uh, so, so if you, uh, I think if you're if you're really critically thinking about your indications in each case, and you're thinking about uh, 
you know, completing your exam and completing your, your history, completing your imaging. Um, just to, for me to, to just have a checklist on every case where I'm thinking, who, someone's going to be looking at this two years from now, or six mm -hmm. months from now. Uh, how are they going to see this from the outside? And so you see your practice as someone else would looking in. And, uh, mm, and it just yeah. it affects how you write your notes. It affects how you, how you, uh, you know, what x-rays you get. It affects your op notes. Yeah. Um, and so I think it, it kind of sets you off on a trajectory where you're thinking about how would, how would the community see this case if they were, if they were examining this. Yeah, that's a, I feel like we do that already just for lawyers and not really for our peers. You know what I mean? Like every, everything's kind of through the lens of what was a lawyer going to do when someone sues me for this case? Or what's he going to see? As far as yeah. documentation, at least. Yeah, probably thinking about that, it probably does help you for uh, medical legal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good point. I, I guess I haven't really seen it through that lens. I just kind of, I've always kind of seen it more as a, just a trouble you have to go through. Um, but that's a good point. When, when I was doing it, I didn't think that. I thought I was just. Yeah. <laughs> but looking back, it's, it's different. <laughs> yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to change it for us. I know they changed it this year. I think they they said the goal next year was to go back to what it was. Um, either way, I, I mean, we'll all have to go through something at some point. You're still going to have the document and choose your cases and, you know, make sure you're doing things the right way. So that's not going to change whatever happens. Yeah, I, I see the value in it, like Dr. Summerson said. And, you know, those habits probably carry forward even after you finish your boards. So probably ends up making us all better surgeons. I'm sure there's a study in there somewhere that we could do. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah. be interesting to look at, look at, uh, look at uh, folks who, who didn't get admitted the first time. So characters there are whether it was uh you know the the total number of cases i had a, a buddy from residency who submitted 400 plus cases in wow. a, uh, <laughs> in a wow, <laughs> yeah and and he uh yeah was doing indicated case he just happened to walk into a really busy practice and uh but he submitted 400 cases and did fine and then i've got some buddies who submitted 40 cases and barely got the minimum. Huh. What is the minimum? I think it's remember? 30. I think it's 35. That's it. At least 35 in six months. Yeah. It's not a lot. Oh, that's yeah. That's really not a lot. That's what? Six cases a month. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's a low, wow. pretty low, pretty low bar. Jeez. Oh. Yeah. Other other rules are you. I think you can't take more than fourteen consecutive consecutive days off from uh, from your practice. Otherwise, they backlog you a month, and then you can't miss a total of one month. Also, during that six months, I only know this because I was planning time off already, and you know those are things <laughs> I discovered. Well, so yeah, I I got this like traveling fellowship to go to Switzerland or Europe somewhere, and I was trying to. Unfortunately, oh, breaking news. Half, yeah, yeah, half my but half my year is going to be during boards. So I'm trying to plan what I want to go, and I had this idea of going right in the middle of my collection period, and uh, I looked it up, and apparently I'm not allowed to do that. So well, you could just push uh, it back a year, like I'm probably going to do. 
That is a that's a possibility. But uh I mean for I a traveling fellowship, I mean it's probably worth it. Yeah, well board collection starts in April, April first. So you know, potentially I could do it before then or or I guess in November or December. Um so those are my options. So anyway, um that's why I was looking up that information. Yeah, it's in your it's definitely in your interest to do that when you're uh you know, when you're not on an incentive program. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would pretty much kill your incentive for, for a month. So Yeah, probably not more than COVID will do though. Yeah. What are uh, what are the coolest places to travel in Europe? I've I've only been to Europe once, so I don't have much experience. I mean it it uh I guess kinda depends. Are you gonna be there with the family or are you gonna be on your own? I th I think they might come for part of it. Uh, obviously, the fellowship doesn't pay for them, so it would be on our own money. Um, but probably for part of it, a week or two, maybe. So, I mean, I, I you know I'm partial to Germany. I haven't spent so much time there. So so Berlin and uh, and Leipzig and Dresden are are some of my favorite spots. From there, you can go to to Prague and uh, and. Budapest and, and I spent a lot of time in that in that part of Europe. So nice. I'll have to get your recommendations closer to the travel date. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm jealous of yeah, Hopefully they lift this ban by then. Yeah, that's that's the other concern. Uh, maybe they won't let me go, especially coming out of Texas, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah Rob was supposed to go spend a month in Italy during his fellowship. And that was that like, got canceled, huh? Yeah, that was like April, right when COVID started. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of throwing everyone's plans off, but I mean it is what it is. Well, they're they're going forward with the foot and ankle meeting in September, which takes place in San Antonio. Oh really? But yeah, it's literally in a few months. But all of my attendings here are saying, you know, there's there's no way. First of all, there's no way Duke isn't Duke isn't paying for anyone's travel anymore. In fact, they're going to restrict people from traveling, probably. So even if they were allowed to go, they wouldn't get paid for it. They're not going to pay their own dime um, to fly to Texas now. So I don't, I don't know what the, you know, how many people are going to show up to these, these society meetings in the next few months. So I don't know. They've all been, they've all been shut down, you know. The uh, Anna Residence course got shut down to shoulder elbow society uh, shoulder elbow surgeons meeting was shut down for october yeah um, that's interesting where was that supposed to take place new york new york yeah 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 the, the orthopedic summit meeting uh, in december in las vegas is is still a go as of now <laughs> what What's funny about that? It's, it's, it's just funny. It's, it's, it's funny that you're, you're tracking this one. <laughs> it's factual. These are these are facts. These are things I've I've submitted stuff. It's a good meeting. It's a good meeting. I went there last yeah, year. Yeah, you went last. Yeah, I, I presented there last year. It was a good meeting. What you What you like about it? It's just I mean, there's good talks. Good faculty there. A lot of a lot of uh, big names talking about stuff that they do. So yeah, and it was in Las Vegas. So it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Let's, we'll see. I don't. Know. I don't think anyone's gonna know what's gonna happen. We all thought we were over this thing like last week, and then, boom! Like this week, everything just exploded again. So yeah, nobody knows what's gonna happen. So I don't know. All right, it's been an hour. I gotta get you out of here. You gotta, you gotta go to sleep. All right. <laughs>
<laughs> but on another depressing note. <laughs> it's gone. That's gone. right. Full circle. Full circle. All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Summerson. Appreciate having you on. Yeah, I appreciate the invite. All right. Thanks. And that'll do it for us this week. Thank you to Dr. Summerson for giving us an hour of his time. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. A lot of good tidbits in there. A lot of good advice, too. Um, so if you like the talk, uh, give us five stars and leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, get at us on Twitter at OrthoTalkPod. You could also email us um, at theorthopodcast at gmail.com. Uh, check out our website, orthotalkpod.com. All our episodes are listed there. Um, and uh, let us know how we're doing. If you have any critiques, shoot us an email or tweet at us. Uh, if you like it, leave us a review. So uh, thank you. And as always, thank you for the opportunity.